The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hello, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And joining me today, I am absolutely delighted on this pre-Halloween show to bring in Zoe Bradbury. Zoe is a 30-year-old, what we call new generation of young farmers. She is based on the southern Oregon coast. She also happens to be a magnificent writer and one of three women that operate a CSA farm. 75 crops on eight acres. I could say you're also the mother of biodiversity. So welcome, Zoe. I'm delighted to have you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, when we had spoken before the interview, I, I wanted to you know frame this with this Halloween theme and say, what frightens you most about American agriculture today? Well, I suppose there are a few things that's a little scary about agriculture in this country these days. Um, I would say that GMOs are probably at the top of my list, um, genetically modified organisms and the big push towards biotechnology. Um, I'm definitely a firm believer in the precautionary principle, and I, I feel like GMOs sort of throw that to the wind and are charging us down a path that I think we really have no idea where it's leading us. And um, to me, as an organic farmer, it's it's frightening to think that there could be a lot of crazy genes on the loose, <laughs> you know, blowing in on my own crops, and um, who knows what I, it could create. I agree, and the fact that you would be responsible then for someone else's contamination of your land. Yeah, absolutely. That's probably a, you know, a great Halloween image, really, the, the monster crops that might someday be right. taking over. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, I think GMOs are really one of my, my big concerns. And um, I also have a lot of concerns about water these days as a farmer. I fortunately live and farm in a place where we have abundant rainfall so far um, and a great water right. So we're in a fortunate situation, but I know a lot of other farmers in the country are dealing with um, inadequate water resources, particularly in California right now. And I think that issue is only going to get more extreme. I agree. Anything else? Um, well, I could go on and on. <laughs> There's, you know, a lot of issues with industrial agriculture, whether you want to talk pesticides or you want to talk labor. Um, I think that, fortunately, there's a lot of people doing good work on all of these issues, uh, trying to head us in a more sustainable direction, whether it's fair labor practices, living wages, um, getting cleaner, greener food out to the American public. But I do think we have a long way to go still. Well, what what scares me uh, also is the fact that if you look at the average age of the American farmer being over age 50 and the turnover of land that we can expect over the, na the next few years, I'm concerned that not enough young people are getting into farming 
and also very much delighted that you are an example of one of many young farmers who I think are going to save our food system. At least I'm hoping so. In fact, you were featured um, on Mother Nature Network News as one of the top 40 farmers under 40. Uh, why did you go into farming? Well, you know, I think I ended up heading down this path because as a college student, I was doing a lot of studies in environmental science, environmental studies, and I found after a couple of years that I was really depressed, and I realized that all these courses I was taking were very gloom and doom, um, a lot about the problems, not about solutions, and the more I thought about that, the more I realized that I really wanted to be part of something positive and beautiful and proactive, and sustainable agriculture really struck me as a way to both engage the landscape and also engage community. Um, so I originally sort of I graduated from college and did a lot of nonprofit work and was working in a lot of um, different sustainable agriculture organizations over a few years after college. And after a little while, I realized that I was literally starving for something. I and I wasn't sure what it was, um, which is ironic because I grew up on a farm in a beautiful place with a lot of dirt under my fingernails and. I um, I guess just finally the light went on. <laughs> I realized, oh, I think I want to be the one growing the food, not just you know supporting others to do that. And so I made the leap and um, started working for an organic farm in California, and then made my way back to Oregon, where I managed an organic farm for three years. And then um, during that whole time, had sort of started scheming about running my own operation, and finally took the leap a couple of years ago. Um, which has been a wild ride, I will say. <laughs> Starting your own farm as a 28-year-old is um, it's an adventure. Well, you were lucky in that you had access to land. Absolutely. What about young people who would like to start farming but may not be so um, fortunate to have access to a family farm that they can go back to? Is there any way that we can help them? Yeah, I think that more and more there are creative arrangements, whether they're leases, whether they're land trusts, whether um, it's a you know borrowed acre in someone's backyard. There, there are people figuring out ways to get around the fact that land is more expensive than it's ever been, and um, paying for land on a farmer's income is a really hard thing for a lot of people to do. Um, like you said, I I didn't have to get over that obstacle because I had family land to come back to, and that was one of the greatest blessings I'm so grateful for every day. Um, but I do know a lot of people who have a pretty hard road to hoe, literally, in terms of either finding land that is secure and they have a you know a 10-year situation where they know they can make some improvements and not fear they'll be kicked off the next year. Um, so I think the, you know, big picture in terms of policy, we probably really need to get a little more serious about, um, you know, you get you get burned at the stake for saying this, but land reform of <laughs> some yeah. sort. It doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, a radical peasant takeover, but I do think that there needs to be some intervention so that ag land, and especially prime farming land, is kept as ag land, not paved over and bulldozed and turned into um, housing developments or supermarkets or shopping malls. Right. Um, 
So we need to be smart about zoning, and I think we also need to create some kind of system. I, I like to think of them as like agricultural reserves that would be incubators for a next generation of farmers so that people could have immediate access should they be so inspired to, you know, take up a shovel and start growing food, have a place to learn their chops and um, not have to struggle against that, that big land challenge right off the bat. And there are a few great examples of that around the country. The Intervale in Burlington, Vermont, um, has a program like that. ALBA, the Agriculture for Land, um, Land-Based Association for Land. What is it? <laughs> I can't remember now. It's the place I worked even, but um, that's September for you. I'm, I've got tomatoes on the brain. Well, I know um, you do, and I, I was reading in your blog, actually, about how you I, – I think I mentioned earlier that I – and I'll mention it three or four more times probably that you are a magnificent writer and talk about this time of year. You write about it as a magnificent collision of the two most abundant seasons, summer and fall, where there are no culinary limits other than the size of our stomachs and how you are um, celebrating the equinox as not just a day on the calendar but a real threshold in farming. And I I just this is just one of many examples of your of the brilliant way in which you turn a phrase and talk about your your life on the farm. I wanted to ask you if if you don't mind about some of the challenges that you face. Um you've got the land, you've got water, uh you've got a good family support network. What are the challenges um that you particularly face every day as a farmer? Well, you know, starting up, the first year of farming, I would say that money was the biggest challenge. Um, I had saved maybe $10,000 leading up to taking the leap and um, farming on my own. And that went away so fast I couldn't believe it. Everyone had warned me about the inevitable spring cash flow crisis in your first year and for a lot of farmers every year. Um, and I thought, well, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> and... Um, through a you know a bunch of unfortunate circumstances, I wasn't able to get a farm service agency beginning farmer loan, which was a total shock that I'd kind of counted on. And I ended up in a cash flow crisis in the spring, and had to actually finance a large part of my farm startup on a zero percent credit card, which was a real nail biter of an experience because um, it just felt very risky. And fortunately, actually just about a week ago, I finally had enough money in my farm checking account to pay off my debt and um, get rid of that card. And it was a huge day for me because the, the financial aspects of getting a farm started are, um, are are pretty challenging, I think, for a lot of us who don't come into it with money and um, don't have trust funds, don't have much to rely on in terms of cash. So. Mm-hmm. Right. I think there's a lot of folks that end up going that route. Um, a lot of the interest, you know, or I'm sorry, a lot of the credit that I might be eligible for is actually very expensive in terms of interest rates. So um, that's been a big one. It's also been something as a as a food and society fellow that I've tried to put a lot of my energy into is trying to talk about that challenge and, you know, come up with some more creative ways that we can help these startup farms succeed because, I think cash is often one of the things that sinks beginning farmers at the get-go. Um, 
now having a CSA farm, you know, a CSA program, community supported agriculture, where we have this season 55 members of the community that are part of the farm and have paid in advance. A lot of that cash flow problem was alleviated um, just because we had that community support in the spring when you need to be spending money like crazy on the farm with seeds and um, amendments and everything you can imagine. There's a lot of hemorrhaging of money at that time of the right. year. That, um, that seems to be the beauty of the CSA model. Is that absolutely. right? Yeah, it really is. And it, it's not just about money, though. I mean, the, um, the amount of community support um, is unprecedented. I had no idea it would be this much fun to start a CSA and have this relationship with all these eaters who every week I get these emails from people or phone calls saying, it's like Christmas every week. I open up my box oh. and I can't believe it. It's so beautiful. And I, I you know, I've had people um, tell me that they have, stop taking medications since they started eating our food, that they've lost 10 pounds this summer because of all the produce that they're eating instead of other things. And it's been a really rewarding experience, but also a real um, eye-opener, I think, especially in the context of this whole healthcare debate right now, because in a lot of ways, it feels like there is some true healing going on through the food and through the farm. Um, my own husband's an acupuncturist, and we always joke that he's you know, he heals people and I feed people, but the other day he looked at me and said, I actually think you're healing people too. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, I don't know, it, it, I often think it, we need to think a little bigger and not just talk about health care reform, but talk about health reform and food being very fundamental to that conversation. Well, as you might imagine, as a dietitian, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> you know, I mean, Hippocrates, I believe, you know, the father of medicine said, let food be your first medicine. Yeah. So I see you actually as a preventive, uh, preventive health um, professional where you are preventing disease, and I think you have absolutely the most important job on this earth in that you are not only feeding people, but feeding people well and at the same time because of your chosen sustainable path with regard to organic agriculture, you're also protecting the soil and water and air quality for future generations. So I personally want to thank you, even though I'm not getting one of those wonderful baskets every week. <laughs> I wish I was. Um, so speaking of health care, Zoe, um, do you have health insurance? I have so, uh, sort of, yes. I pay for health insurance, um, but really when it boils down to it, it's pretty much a catastrophic health insurance plan. Mm -hmm. So my deductible is so high that aside for, from the, the few sort of complimentary preventative care visits that I'm allowed each year, I really don't um, utilize it at this point. I would, you know, it's basically there if I get run over by my draft horse or um, munched by the tractor or something really right. bad. Right. <laughs> Which so, I, you know, I, I can't believe that is the case. I, I wish it was otherwise. Right, because you have helped people stop taking their medicine they, people have lost weight eating a healthful diet that you produce, and yet you yourself um, don't have the luxury of the of the public health option. I'd like I'd like to throw out a vote for that, but um, I would too. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's really critical that the people who are saving lives 
um, get some basic level of protection, I think, on their own right. Well, yeah. it's interesting. You know, I, I was reading about a little bit about your history, and I noticed that uh, during your graduate school education, you studied in Chile. Yeah. And I would, would you tell us a little bit about that experience and, and compare and contrast the, the Chilean farmers with those of us here in the United States? Yeah, absolutely. I um I spent about four months down there, and it was a a really neat opportunity because I was doing honors thesis work, and uh, I spent about six or seven months doing field work, um, original research for my project. And the first three months, I actually came home and spent the time interviewing all of our neighbors in our watershed here um, in the valley where I grew up, basically just trying to get a feel for where all these farmers stood in terms of their sense of the future and their their prospects as independent family farmers. And then I went down to Chile and I did the exact same interviews with a group of farmers down there in a somewhat similar community as far as um, there's a lot of livestock production, a lot of timber, um, some row cropping, but very remote, very rural, um, pretty high poverty levels, both in our county where I grew up and now live and also down in Chile. Although the poverty in Chile was much more extreme. I mean, we were talking about families that didn't have running water or electricity, and a lot of those improvements were just getting made. So in, in a lot of senses, you would think, you know, the farmers here at home would be so much more optimistic and, and well-off. But the reality was that even these people, you know, our neighbors who had, you know, a 1,000 acres and a brand-new F-250 truck um, were very fatalistic and apathetic about the future as, as independent small farmers. Um, whereas in Chile, there was this amazing optimism and positive outlook. And I think it had a lot to do with the fact that in Chile, um, all these farmers that I was interviewing were working with a really interesting organization that was helping the whole community shift to a more sustainable agriculture approach. Um, really a lot of organic emphasis, a lot of appropriate technology and appropriate crops for where these people lived, um, things that were durable so that if they needed to get to market, everything wouldn't have wilted and, and be so perishable that they couldn't get it to Santiago to sell. Um, so it was just a very holistic approach. And I think because the farmers in that community felt the support and also um, at the same time were you know, not only making these improvements agronomically, they were also doing it socially. They had co-ops starting. Um, there was this real sense of empowerment. And, and I think it translated into hope. And here people were really um, more go-it-alone, um, I think felt a little betrayed by the American dream that never necessarily came to fruition. Um, this is a very different psychology, and um, it, you know, I kind of it, it. I think it debunked what my hypothesis had been <laughs> when mm -hmm. I went into the project, thinking that there would, you know, somehow be more going for people here. But the one interesting thing was that the the few outliers in the interviews I did here at home, were, the people who really were hopeful, were the folks who were ahead of the curve and doing something that was getting them out of commodity markets, getting them into um, more direct marketing, doing something a little bit more creative, more diversified. And those were the folks who were really excited. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it was a, it was definitely an interesting opportunity to, to see that trend and also to, you know, study up on all the, the, the politics of food in our country, which are very, very 
rich and mm-hmm. <laughs> thick. Mm-hmm. And scary. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're just joining us, uh, we are speaking today with Zoe Bradbury, considered one of the new and upcoming farmers that are really trying to take our country back and reform agriculture to make it a more healthful kind of food system. And Zoe is based in Oregon, along the southern Oregon coast, and I have to say that she's also a magnificent writer. And I want to take this time to mention the name of your farm. It's Valley Flora. And if you go online uh, and simply search, uh, you can go to www.valleyflorafarm.com. And if you click on Meet Your Farmers, and you can click on uh, Zoe's blog, and I promise you, you will be stuck online reading her magnificent writing for at least an hour or so. Um, Zoe, let's get back to the issue of policy, because I know you just got back from Washington, D.C. with uh, the other Food and Society Policy Fellows, and I know you visited the White House Garden, and there were probably some very rich discussions about what needed to be changed. Tell me about that trip. Well, it's definitely the most inspiring trip to Washington, D.C. I've, I've ever gotten to participate in. Um, in the same day, we got to go to the USDA and sit down with Deputy Secretary Kathleen Merrigan and hear about their new Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food initiative, which is coming straight from the top at the USDA, trying to promote more vibrant local and regional food systems. Um, I think that's a pretty historic initiative for this country. And... Um, we got to visit the People's Garden outside of the USDA building right there on the Capitol Mall. And then we tromped over to the White House and got a tour of the White House Garden led by Sam Cass, um, who's heading up the White House Food Initiative, working with the Obamas um, both to you know, grow their own garden, which is a wonderful, wonderful display of all kinds of amazing produce they're, they're growing on the South Lawn, everything from... Um, specialty cauliflower that was saved from seed that Thomas Jefferson collected and grew out at Monticello um, to sun gold cherry tomatoes, which we grow right here on the farm as well. Um, Sam was even generous to let us eat a cherry tomato from there. Oh, which wow. he said he never lets anyone do, but <laughs> <laughs> they were great. Um, yeah, and it, it, and it was just a, a pretty remarkable week because of those two visits, the, the amount of energy and momentum in Washington, D.C., amongst, the, you know, the actual first family as well as the leadership at the USDA around good food is, is amazing. Um, the White House Farmer's Market opened a few days after we were there, just a block from the White House itself, and that was largely spearheaded by the Obamas and by Sam Cass and I think a, a big other group of folks in the city. So... Um, I came away just feeling really excited and uplifted, uh, almost like um, for the first time ever, it feels like we are really working with folks in D.C. and the the voice that is this movement, the sustainable ag movement, is being heard loud and clear. And um, I think it's high time. I agree. You are speaking to a radio audience who is supporting you, I'm sure, what can we do specifically to help you and other young farmers who are farming uh, smartly and sustainably? What can we do to keep this movement going? Well, one of the things that um, I think is sometimes the elephant in the room around 
beginning farming and young farmers is a lack of cultural support. I think that, you know, uh, there's probably thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in their early 20s who are getting out of college saying, you know, I think I really want to farm. And maybe they didn't grow up on a farm. Maybe they're from the city or the suburbs, but they have this itch and this intuition that that's really what they want to do with their life. And um, they graduate from college and they announce to their family that they want to grow up and be a farmer. And their parents look at them with the raised eyebrows and, you know, and laugh because it seems ridiculous in this day and age when, you know, there are fewer farmers than there are federal prison inmates in this exactly. country. Exactly. So uh, I think that whether it's family support, whether it's just mainstream cultural support, um, this country could do itself a great service by cheering on and really celebrating a next generation of farmers and, and elevating that, that profession just the way we do firemen or doctors um, as really essential players in our economies and in our societies and our cultures. And our health. And our health, absolutely. Um, so that's you know that's a, a real big thing. I think also a real easy thing that a lot of people can do is simply buy the food that young farmers are growing. Um, you know, markets are expanding, but I think it's still a challenge for a lot of young farmers is to you know to crack into the markets that are actually going to give them a reasonable rate of return on their labor and all their hard work and. Um, you know, for me, I've been so grateful to be in a community of people who have been really excited to um, to get this food and you know buy strawberries, buy the flat, and come and you pick and just really show up. And that makes all the difference because it means that at the end of the season, when I close my books, you know, hopefully it's penciled out and <laughs> I've got enough money to get me through and into the next season and do it all over again. So. Um, I think those two things are, are really huge. Well, I think that uh, the hunger that you described feeling when you got out of college, something tells me that that hunger has been satisfied. Absolutely. I love my life. I love what I do, and I, I feel that way every day, even on the longest, hardest, most grueling days. Right. I still look up and go, oh, I am so grateful to get to be part of this landscape and and, you know, be back in a place I love so much and see these people that appreciate it and it's extremely gratifying. Well, we are so lucky uh, that you're doing the work that you're doing. Our time is up. I knew it would fly, and I'm so glad you had a chance to share your voice with our listeners. Uh, we've been speaking with Zoe Bradbury, who's a farmer, a writer, and an advocate for other young farmers. I encourage you to go to her website, which is Valley Flora farm.com and the organization Zoe that I think um, we were trying to remember earlier is the Agriculture and Land-Based Training Association. Yes, Am thank I correct? you. Okay, great, great. <laughs> so that's another place where young farmers can go for hope and inspiration. I want to close by thanking you Zoe and thanking our listeners and to remind our listening audience that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you for being with me Zoe. Thank you so much, Melinda.